Episode 10. No! 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 Illogic and foolish emotions, a constant irritant. Then transfer out, freak! Two! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Sheep flying, no good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-lipped, Worm-headed sack of monkeys! And now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, blah, blah! Alright, welcome back. We're, uh, we're here, uh, with our, uh, first, uh, monthly Monday Star Trek episode where we're taking a random, uh, episode of the original series of Star Trek and, uh, raking it through our critical calls, although we're gonna love them because we're big fans of the original Star Trek. Um, Amen. And, uh, I'm Chris Honeywell, and I'm, I'm here with the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous and former alcoholic, Scott Gardner, also known as Bill. I, I don't know how former I am, but um, as far as the alcoholic <laughs> part, but uh, yeah, thanks. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. And uh, my name is Chris Honeywell, and I'm a true freak. And that's when everybody goes, <laughs> hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. So we're going over our first, this is our first Star Trek episode. And it it and we use our random Star Trek computer number generator, which we'll be using at the end of this episode to find out what we're going to do next month. Now but you this, know that there's going to be legions of our listeners out there going, "Yeah, random, my ass. You pick number one to start with." But yeah, it was it's, truly random. It's it truly just, random. We're using a random number generator. Yep, it just happened to come up with with. Well, I mean, it, it it is and it isn't. I mean, it's it's the number one episode as far as it was the the first or excuse me, the second pilot, the the only pilot to actually air. But if you, it depends on how you go by the list, because on the list it's actually the man trap. It wasn't. It wasn't. Yeah, the man trap was actually the first aired episode, but this was the first like produced and eventually wound up on the air episode. So it all it all depends on how you look at it, I well, guess. I think the man trap was like a special preview episode or something, you know, that they that they put on before the series. You know, it it seemed like Star Trek was up in the air quite a bit. Oh yes, before it it, it actually came out. But this was really this was the, uh, I guess technically the uh, opening opening uh, episode, 
And I think they picked it because they wanted it to be a little more action-packed mm-hmm. than the yeah. last one. You, I think you were telling me that. My my understanding is the the cage, the first pilot, that's the one with Captain Pike and the assheads, that got rejected for basically being too cerebral or, you know, in layman's terms, this is good too, too good for TV, too good right. for the idiot TV audience, basically. You know, that was the TV execs looking down their nose at the, the general public and thinking, ah, oh, those dumbasses will never get this, you know? Yeah. So basically, they they commissioned um, Roddenberry to do another take, another pilot, which I could be wrong, but I believe that was unprecedented at that time. And it's only ever happened a handful of times in, in TV history, and I believe Star Trek was the first time it ever happened where a second pilot was commissioned. And, you know, they basically said, you know, you know, dirtied up, add some, you know, add some bare knuckle fist fight type of thing. So that's why, you know, a lot of, a lot of where no man has gone before to me is just as cerebral as the cage. Yep. But then at the end of it, it turns into a brawl, you know, I mean, at, at the very end, it's, you know, it's been this big God, you know, the man becoming God story. But then at the end, you know, Kirk bare knuckle, you know, kicks his ass. So, you know, but that we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, I think. Fists and phasers. Yep. That's what Kirk was all about. And phallus. But, uh, <laughs> Fist, phaser, and phallus. There you go. They, oh, I like that. The the the, the four F, or the three Fs. Yeah, I like that. Well, it's two Fs and a P, but something like that. <laughs> what do you want from me? I'm tired. Um. Real quick before we get into the actual episode, though, um, did did you have any anything to to shout out or to talk about before we we no, do our not yeah. that I can really think of. I, I just had a couple quick things. Um, first of all, um, I want to try to do a little you know other than just doing the the episode review that we're we're going to do each Star Trek Monthly Monday um, episode. I was I just want to you know throw in whatever little Trek bits, you know, happen to come our way or whatever, whether it's, you know, a little book review or just a little nugget of Trek somewhere. This was something that, you know, when Chris and I were wandering around the internet, just happened to run across. And I think it's worth, you know, throwing to, you know, the the fans out there. I I thought this site was absolutely hysterical. Now, any of you guys that, that you know, work in – you know, like an office environment, you know, where you've got like say cubicles or like a, like an HR department or something, you guys are going to know what I'm talking about. You ever see these inspirational posters and they're usually something like, it'll be like a mountain scene, like a guy standing on the side of a mountain with like the sun setting behind him. It'll say like success in great big letters. And then underneath it'll say something like the surest way not to fail is to determine to succeed or, you know, it'll be like, you know, a bunch of assholes rowing a boat and it'll say yep. persistence. Challenges are what make life interesting. Overcoming them is what make life meaningful. Oh. You know, I I think those things are ridiculous. But yeah. well, they, we then found they it. made the demotivational ones. Those are sort of the Internet <laughs> yeah. hit. That... <laughs> well, we found a site that is Star Trek inspirational posters 
And basically, you can you can download these and use them as wallpaper on your computer. I think they're at, some of them are absolutely hysterical. Here, here's here's three of my favorites, just to give you an idea of what's on their site. There's one that shows the landing party on Cestus Three from Arena. That's the one where Kirk fights the Gorn, Cestus and it's in the the big letters say expendability, and underneath <laughs> it says. Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Ensign Ricky are beaming down to the planet. Guess who's not coming back? I like that one. Um, another one. This this is my second favorite one. It says ingenuity, and it's a picture of Kirk shooting the cannon at the Gorn. And it says, <laughs> yes, it is perfectly reasonable that Kirk had the know-how to make the gunpowder and put together the bazooka to defeat the Gorn. That's why he's the goddamn captain. Love that one. Love that. But my... my <laughs> my favorite one and you just you gotta go to the site and see it to understand it because I can't do this picture justice but it is a classic Kirk smiling laughing yucking it up pose on the bridge sitting in his captain's chair and it just says the big words on it are Captain James T. Kirk and underneath it it says I'm sorry I can't hear you over the sound of how awesome I am I, I fucking love this. This was my, this was my wallpaper on my computer for a, a good, because <laughs> I just I love that poster. And they're done to look just like those motivational posters you see. So I mean, they're really worth checking out. The email address for this, or not email, but the web address rather for this site is ridiculously goddamn long. So just type in a Google search for Star Trek inspirational posters. You'll find it. There's like four or five pages, some really good ones. Some of them are not so funny, but most of them are really, really funny. And uh, and I just thought that it was really cool. You know, everything's a free download on there and all that. Um, next, um, I promised some Star Trek book reviews. I had a couple just real quick ones. Um, not too long ago, I finished a couple um, of books, of Voyager books. Now, I just recently finished... Um, watching Voyager for the first, I watched all seven seasons. I watched it a little bit when it came. I, well, actually, I watched it fairly religiously when it first came out, like the first two, two or three seasons. When, and whenever it got up to the point where Seven joined the show, and for some weird reason, you know, I quit right after she joined. And it's weird because the show is really not very good until she joins. But for some reason, when she joined, I stopped watching originally when it was airing. But I, a while ago I, I had determined that, you know, there was a lot of Trek I hadn't seen. And, you know, since it doesn't look like we're going to, or at least, you know, up until they announced this new movie, it didn't look like we were going to get any, any more Trek or any new Trek. I decided, you know, there's a lot of it I haven't watched. I'm going to go watch it. So, you know, I sat down and watched DS9, and then I just made my way through Voyager. Well, when Voyager was over, I actually was itching for more because as much as I really found that I enjoyed the series, I, I, it was much better than I thought it was going to be. I became really attached to some of the characters. I still maintain that the finale episode was really lame and really unfulfilling. So I was excited to find out that there's books that take place after the series ends. So anyway, the, the two books that I, I just read were um, – one is called Seven of Nine by Christy Golden. And I really enjoyed the book, but I can't recommend it very highly only because this book came out at a time when the character was brand new. 
you know, she had just joined the cast and she was basically just finding her identity. So a lot of what she goes through in this book and a lot of the situations actually ended up coming up a lot in the very next season. And it almost there's there's one episode in particular that almost feels like they took this book and just adapted it into an episode. So it's so, kind of redundant. Yeah, you know, so it's not a bad bad read or anything, but you know, you nailed it. It was just redundant. So I mean, if you've seen the episode, you don't really need to to read the book at all. But it was interesting. I mean, it wasn't bad. Um, this other one was fantastic, and I mean, I'm picky about my Trek books. I've got a ton of Trek books. I've read most of them. There's still a couple that are sitting there that one of these days I'll get around to. But Trek books are tricky, man. They're kind of like Star Wars books is where there's a lot of them that just really aren't that great. So I'm very leery when I go into a new Trek book. But this book nailed it. This book, except for one plot element, I thought really worked. And it was called Homecoming. It was a Star Trek Voyager book. It literally picks up right where the series ends because the series... Spoiler for anybody that doesn't know. The series ends, literally, the last shot in Voyager is Voyager coming to Earth. That's how the series ends. They finally make it home. Well, this book picks up right at that spot with Voyager. You know, they come to Earth. They're debriefed. And then, basically, the book follows them as they return to regular life after having spent seven years in the Delta Quadrant. You know, and it's them, like reassimilating, you know, into society and, and into Starfleet duties or whatever, you know, wherever their destinies are taking them. I really liked it. You know, it was nice to see where the characters were going to start going, you know. And I liked that aspect of it. The the only weak spot to me was now I don't know about anybody else. The whole thing with the doctor, you know, starting to fight for hologram rights and all that shit that that shit to me was so ridiculous i could yeah. buy all that with data you know data was an was an android made in human form and you got to feel that he was a person that he had arguably data had a soul or at least a semblance of of you know of humanity to where you could understand where somebody would fight for data you know, I mean, for one thing, Starfleet didn't create data. He wasn't their property, you know, whereas the doctor, it, you know, you can argue it any way you want. He's a piece of software, basically. He's a, exactly. He's a fucking program created by Starfleet for a specific purpose. So the idea that he could suddenly, like, you know, rebel or fight for his rights or what is a absolute, absolutely ludicrous idea. I think anyway, I think it was stupid. And so there's, there's one plot element in this book where basically there's a hologram revolt that was retarded. And I hope in the next book, cause this, <laughs> this book ends as a cliffhanger and I mean, the highest recommendation I can give this book is that I'm, I'm, ready for the next book. I, as a matter of fact, I just ordered it today. I've got to read where this story goes. Because other than the hologram thing, it was nailing it for me. I really liked where it was going, and I've got to see where the characters wind up. Um, the very best thing of all about this book, no Neelix. Neelix is not in this book. He's mentioned briefly. You know, Anybody that, that saw the series... And spoiler again, if you haven't seen how Voyager ended, 
in the I think it was the second to the last episode, Neelix stays on this planet of his own people and becomes like basically the Delta Quadrant ambassador to the Federation. So Neelix did not return with Voyager when Voyager came back to Earth at the end of the series. So thankfully, he's not in this book. That to me alone makes this book <laughs> worth reading. Because I, I'm sorry, I hated Neelix. My my only episode of uh, of Voyager that I liked Neelix in was the episode that he died, and then they brought the son of a bitch back. So <laughs> I was really happy he's not in there. Hopefully, he won't be in the next one either. But I'm I'm really ready to read that book. I'll have more Star Trek book reviews coming along. I still plan to get to the rest of the con books. I just got kind of sidetracked, but I, I will be getting to those. And I've got just a ton more Trek books to get to. And I've actually got some I'd like to reread that I haven't read in a long, long time. So there'll be more of those coming along. Um, do we need a break or you want to get right into the episode? Well, let's see. What are we looking at? how long we've been jabbering here. I didn't notice what time we started. <laughs> yeah, we're going at about 20 minutes. Uh, we, can, we can start on the episode. Cool. We can sink our teeth into it at least. Excellent. All right, so, so which... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So <laughs> I don't know uh, which this is going. Oh, so it's no man, where no man has gone before. Um, one of my personal favorites. It's great, and it's sort of one that when in our Halloween horror episode we sort of brought it up as a at the end and uh we're really getting into it and it was really it was really great when that came up as the first episode to talk about and it was fun to rewatch it i went i watched it on um cbs.com actually they have a bunch of all the old star treks up there and you can watch them pretty well i i it was it looked really nice on full screen on my computer and uh the sound was beautiful it was you know now you said this was the classic version right this wasn't the re the redo what are they calling those remastered with the new remastered, special effects? maybe i'm not sure it doesn't have the new special effects it might have been cleaned up a bit you know because mm -hmm. i noticed when the trans when i was watching a scene with the transporter room that you could see the brush strokes of the paint where they painted the wood on the transporter yeah. that was supposed to be metal, but you could see the paint strokes on it, and it was like, well, maybe they fixed it up a little too well, you know? <laughs> I but, have uh, all these from DVD from, I think it was the most recent or the next to most recent release, so they look fantastic. Yeah. But that's actually, that's kind of a double-edged sword that they look so good. Because you got to remember, these shows aired in the '60s when most people had, you know, a black and white dinky ass screen for a TV, so you couldn't see things like the fact that when Kirk and Gary are tussling, that it's not William Shatner or Gary Lockwood, you know. Right. And you can see that plain as day now when you're watching it on crystal clear DVD. But back in the day, you know, you 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 couldn't tell. I mean, I remember watching when you and I used to watch these. As Channel Eleven, you know, actual films, you know, when they were, you know, when we watched yeah. them as kid, it was from film, and it was all scratched up, and you know, it would jump and everything else, and you you couldn't tell that it didn't have the detail, but with this, you know, with the beautiful DVD detail, you you can see things like that plain as day now, and it somewhat it's, takes you out of it's it. It's a little more apparent that it's a a, a set and. uh 
made out of wood <laughs> rather than some high high test you know future alloy now before we get into this um do we need to do we need to run down the episode you think you know just give like a a, a summarization or you want to get right into it yeah no let's 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 give a summary of the story okay so, I'll, i can do a quick and dirty one if you want okay all right, so the Enterprise is on a mission um, basically to leave the galaxy for the first time. And they approach the, the barrier to the edge of the galaxy and they pick up this old style, what do they call it, a distress probe or something like that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost, it sounds like the equivalent of a black box on an yeah. airplane nowadays. So they pick this thing up and they hook it to Spock's computer on the bridge, and, and uh, do they do they listen? They listen to it before they go in or after? I think they listen to it after they go in. I can't remember, but anyway, they listen to the to the black box thing, and Spock's going through, and they're figuring out that something bad happened to this ship, to to the point where the captain destroyed his own vessel. But they forge ahead with the mission. And they go through the barrier, and when they pass through the barrier, the um, navigator um, Gary um, Mitchell Mitchell Kirk's best friend at this point gets zapped and collapses to the floor, and one other crewman, the doctor, um, what? Is, she's like ship psychiatrist or something. She's well, basically no, like she, the, she just joined. She That's just right. joined from like uh, a star base, and she was there to see how people, crew members, reacted under stress conditions. That's right. That's so right. She was doing an, not maybe an experiment, but she was, you know, she was doing research. So she gets zapped as well. She pretty much recovers right away, and she's she appears to be okay. But Gary, when Kirk flips him over, his eyes have turned silver. So, you know, they send him down to sick bay and he's being monitored and stuff. And right away, the plot on this one moves really fast, yeah. almost fast to the point where it seems like there's kind of vast jumps of of logic and vast jumps to conclusion. But I guess that's just to keep it moving because they've got a lot of ground to cover in this. But anyway, right away, Spock is like super suspicious because of the, the logs he heard from the other ship and everything. And Gary starts to exhibit powers, like mutant powers, like almost like Jean Grey type mind powers of like telekinesis and mind reading and shit like that. And he's learning and, quickly. Yeah. And so he's like whipping through the ship's library and, right. you know, like a matter of hours and stuff like that. So he's, you know, his powers are growing exponentially to the point where spock is basically the 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 harbinger of doom in this episode keeps preaching to kirk the fact that you know we're gonna have to do something about this guy right up to the fact where he he eventually convinces kirk look it, it's it's maroon him or kill him so they elect to go to this nearby planet that's uninhabited it's like a mining planet or something like an almost like an oil refinery planet basically right. And maroon Gary there. And they manage to get him down to the planet. And they lock him up at first, but his powers grow and grow and grow and grow. And they eventually grow to the point where he's too powerful for them to hold anymore. 
and he escapes. And when he escapes, he takes the lady doctor with him because by this point, it's been a slow process, but now she's mutated too. So she's another one just like him with the silver eyes. They strike out on their own out to like this desert region of the planet that they they start to remake into like a Garden of Eden type of thing. And Kirk alone goes after them to hunt Gary down and stop him one way or the other. And that's... We'll, we'll leave it. We'll we'll leave it right there and, until we get to the end of it. But that that's that's a, a quick and dirty version sure of the plot. Um, I don't know where you want to go. The first thing I wanted to comment on was, uh, you know, I just watched this like two hours ago, and I cannot remember the doctor's name to save my life. But she's played by Sally Kellerman, who's probably most famous for originating the role of Hot Lips Houlihan in the Mash mm-hmm. movie. Yep, in the Rod- Robert Altman movie. Hmm? In, yeah, directed by Robert Altman. Like Popeye. Yep. Popeye. <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, Gary Lockwood plays Gary Mitchell. And the only other thing I've ever seen Gary Lockwood in, I'm sure he made other things, but the, the most famous thing I know him from besides this episode was, like I mentioned in, in another episode we did, um, he was um, Frank Poole the doomed astronaut in uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. By the way, just a quick side note, Poole actually comes back in a book called 3001. Oh, really? Uh, and it's great. Great book. There, there, there was, was it like, Arthur C. Clarke that yes, wrote it? Yes, yes it was. And there, I, think there's, I think that's the fourth book because there's 2001, 2010, 2061, which sucked, and then there was 3001, and I can't remember what the subtitle of 3001 was, but 3001 was great because it starts out in these this this like spaceship, kind of like how they find Ripley at the beginning of Aliens. Uh-huh. They find Pool floating out in space, and by that point, technology has advanced to the point where they can bring him back. And they bring him back, and here this guy is misplaced a thousand years out of time. Damn, it was a good book. It was really, really good. As a matter of fact, it, it's got me jazzed. I actually want to reread it again now because it was really good. Um, but anyway, that was just a quick side note. Um, what you got? Well, um, this definitely uh, was made in a period where a lot of the characters weren't as fully formed as well, Dr. McCoy wasn't even formed at all. Mm-hmm. They, they had no crotchety, even older and cro- more crotchety doctor. Um, Mark Mark Piper. The 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 outfits were a little different. They're a little more like sweater, sweater style, and uh, you know there were there were some things, just minor inconsistencies, like when at the beginning when Kirk's playing uh, chess with Spock, and Spock makes a comment of like you know just because I have you know, a human married to one of my ancestors doesn't make me blah, blah, blah. And Kirk makes a joke. Oh, like it's terrible to have that bad blood in you, huh? <laughs> but, uh, you know, and <clears throat> later on, of course, we know his, uh, mother's human and his father's Vulcan. So that, 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 that element hadn't really been formed into his character. And, uh, he was still a yeller then, just like yeah. in the cage, you know, he'd stand by his post and yap out the 
um, information and sometimes when it was just sort of an order to do something or he was saying that he was doing something it, it would have that inflection that would go up like a question that was my biggest note for Spock I, I made several <laughs> my biggest note for Spock was stop screaming damn it yeah what was he does he I mean the nobody else is yelling <laughs> so, somebody asked him something and, and he says uh, negative I'm like, Dude, they're, they're like three feet from you you know I mean yeah, he does, and he did. He he did the same thing in the cage, and it drove yep. me crazy. So yeah, I don't think he does it again after this episode, thankfully. But uh, you mentioned the uniforms. Now, did you notice Spock's collar was different from everybody else's? Yeah, I, I learned this watching the the DVDs. I have have a text commentary on them by Michael Okuda, um, who was a, he was a big deal behind the scenes guy on like Next Gen and all the the later treks. Um, his collar actually unhinged so they could get the shirt on and off over his head and not mess up his ears. And that's, oh. what the deal. that's why it's so big and flared out compared to everybody else's. That makes sense. But, uh, yeah, I've, man, I, I took like super notes on this one, but I don't want to bogart the episode. But yeah, you mentioned Dr. McCoy. That was one of my big notes was that, uh, there's no Ahura. Yep. Or McCoy in this one. So, you know, two of the, like, iconic Trek uh, cast members aren't even in this. They they both appear for the first time in the next episode, the Corbomite Maneuver. Um, but even though Ahura's not there, I, I really noted the last couple of times I watched this one, there's either a lot of black men on the Enterprise. Which, right. I mean, that's great. It's either that or I think I caught a continuity thing because I think when Kirk first comes to the bridge, a black guy passes by him going into the turbo lift. Uh -huh. And then the perspective changes to show Kirk stepping down to the level where his chair is before he's got to step up to get in it. And a black guy goes into the turbo lift. And then a moment later, it looks like they change perspective again. And it looks like that same black guy walks to the communications station. So it's either three different black guys on the bridge or the same black guy and the continuity person needs to get fired. Cause, right. You know, they were it, just using him over and over again to make it look yeah. like there were more black guys. Like, Yeah. But I thought that that was worth noting, whether it's one guy or three guys, just the simple fact that they had black men on the bridge of the Enterprise, you know, in 1960. I mean, at this point when they were filming this, it was probably 65, I'm thinking. Yeah. That's that was ballsy for that era. You know, this was an era when, you know, it was, you know, TV was all white. Yeah. Know, TV was just, smoked. they were one of the first shows to start testing those boundaries. And then there were a lot more like, um, you know, like Archie Bunker mm -hmm. and Sanford and Son that, you know, that started testing boundaries of taste and race and all that more. But Star Trek was really, you know, ahead of the curve on that. And Gene Roddenberry really consciously wanted to project a future where, you know, prejudice was sort of not really an issue anymore. If yep. if there was going to be prejudice, it was going to be, you know, the Chirons fighting and Kirk got to go like, you know, come on. Why can't we all get along? The so, only time, the top of my head, I can ever remember race among crew coming up at all was that one with Abraham Lincoln 
where he calls Ahura. Oh yeah. Some, I don't remember what he calls her? Some sort of, like a Nubian something, or yeah. I can't and remember. She, yeah, she just says, you know, and then he he like catches himself and goes, "Oh, I'm I'm sorry," or whatever he says. I you know I didn't mean that, you know, as a as a you know, whatever, and she's like, oh, you know, basically, ah, don't worry about it, you know, I mean, you know, we've learned, you know, that not to, not, I think she says, we've learned not to fear words or something, and I always liked that, I always thought that was awesome, you know, I wish more people were, were like that in the world yeah. today, where shit didn't bother them, and they weren't all uptight about things, but... Yeah, I think anyway. Gene Roddenberry really wanted to project that as what the, you know, kind of a utopian future, and it also took a lot of that stuff off the table overtly as a story element. All that stuff would have to be done sort of symbolically and with aliens and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's going to be dealt with in the story, which is a lot more interesting than if it... And also George Shakai's in this one, and he has a he has a nice little scene where, you know, he... When they're, when they're having a little conference and, you know, an, an Asian member... There was an Asian member of the crew. There was a uh, Russian member of the crew. I don't think Chekhov was until, like, the third season. Was it the second or third? Second, second or third, but I think it's the second. I'm Who's, pretty sure it's the second. But, um, yeah, they tried... They, yeah. they really tried to... Now, he... I, I found him listed somewhere as ship's physicist... But I think all he says, you know, when they're giving their departments at the beginning, when they're all standing on the bridge, I think he says astro science. So he's not part of the of the bridge crew. I, right. I often wonder if he's even playing Sulu because I don't. Do they give him a name? No. I'm not sure if they name him. No, but you I mean, just go there's Sulu because it's yeah. George Takai. And then you know we see Scotty for the first time. And you know the the doctor's different. It's not Doctor McCoy. It's Doctor Piper. And then for some reason, I always thought Kelso was was around for more episodes, but Kelso is just in this one. So I don't know why I've even remembered the guy's name all these you know, years. Cause... You know what's funny is I thought the same exact thing. I'm like thinking, why do I? Why does this guy sound familiar? Maybe that you know. I mean. There could be more than one Kelso. He could have a brother. They could be a couple of brothers on the Enterprise. I don't know. They probably all got wasted. I'm sure. I think but this was, you know, one of these deals where I think Channel Eleven played this episode a lot because until I started buying these on VHS when they first started coming out on VHS, you know, however many years ago that was, there were actually episodes I think I saw for the first time when I bought them because I, I think certain channels, I, I know Channel 11 in particular, uh -huh. I think there were certain episodes they just never showed. That oh, maybe sure. they didn't have them in the library or what. And I remember this episode being on a lot. And then there were other ones like, uh, like the Cloud Minders because I can remember one of Randy's favorite lines. You know, He was another guy, another friend of ours that loved Star Trek. One of his favorite lines is he always used to like he used to like to say dig with your bare hands. And I knew it, I knew it was a Kirk quote, but I had no idea what episode it was from because I'd never seen it. And it's the Cloud Minders that I don't think I saw until I actually bought that on videotape. So anyway, they, they um, probably did. They, they're probably ones that were rated better than others. Oh yeah, just didn't get get you know they got pulled out of rotation. Now, did you notice? Now, it might have been different on the version you watched, but in the version I've got on on DVD, 
the music plays at the credits, but Kirk does not say space the final frontier. Did you catch that? Yeah, that was kind of weird. Yeah. Because you're anticipating that, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and, and also, did you notice that we're dealing with a different Kirk, too? Oh, James R. Kirk? Yes, instead of yeah. James T. Kirk. I don't know what yeah. happened. James R. Kirk must have been the guy who was wrestling at the end. <laughs> the guy that doesn't look a thing like uh, like William Shatner? Uh-huh. His hair color wasn't even the same. It was, it was wacky. <laughs> Another thing I noticed, and this was one of those things I didn't used to notice as a kid or anything. So, somewhere along the line it was pointed out to me. It was probably in some book I read somewhere or something. But they pulled a Radar, radar O'Reilly on Scotty because James Doohan is missing a finger on one of his hands. So when you watch his hands working the controls, like in the transporter room, uh -huh. if you pay close attention, there's one hand that you never see all the fingers of because he always has it like over the edge of the console or some in some angle. And I think I read somewhere that it wasn't until the movie Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, that you actually saw Scotty's whole hand and that he was missing that finger. Because, I, I mean, maybe you know the story behind Why did they do stuff like that? Like, remember Gary Berghoff? One of his hands was messed up. And they always used to position him to where you couldn't see the one hand that was messed up on M.A.S.H. Well, on M.A.S.H. I could understand that because... If they if they made it clear that his hand was messed up, it would be questionable how he got into the army in the first place. Oh yeah, you know? that's, a good, that's a good point. But as but far as Scotty, no, with Scotty, that would be a great little character character wrinkle. You know, he's an yeah. engineer. It's like the it's like the um, it's like the shop teacher with a finger missing. You know, it's the same <laughs> thing. You know, he's a good engineer. He's he's sacrificed a finger to the ship. You know, or to a ship or something at some time. I mean, you gotta figure. was it either, I'm thinking it's one of two things. It was either, you know, that, that I don't want to exactly use the word prejudice, but you know what I mean? That, that sixties bias against certain types of things, like maybe physical deformities, I don't know, or maybe using reverse logic of what you just said, maybe they were thinking, well, this makes him look like a shitty engineer if he's right. actually lost a finger on the job. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'd be really curious to know why that was. Maybe he they, just, maybe James Dewan was just like, ah, I don't want anybody, you know, who knows? Maybe oh, he was sensitive be, yeah. about it and didn't want anybody to see it. That could be. I don't but, know. By the time he was 60, nine years old or 97 <laughs> years old for that episode he didn't care anymore like, I, just let, I'm sick of hiding it let him see it I don't give a shit he certainly wasn't hiding his gut by that point so, got to you know. bit it off I don't know <laughs> <laughs> alright here's my biggest question about this episode this is the one thing that even from a child I you know and Scotty I watched this today I, you know, I wanted to watch this episode again for myself, but I also wanted to try to watch it through first-time eyes. So over dinner, I watched this with my with my two children, and Scotty quickly pointed out, why didn't they just fly over the barrier? And I remember thinking this from the first time I saw it as a kid. You know, I thought the same thing. Obviously, they knew after having gotten that flight recorder 
and listened to it and realizing the other ship went through some problems and was eventually destroyed, that going through the barrier was probably not a good idea. Something something very bad happened. So I, I'm just wondering, I mean, was going through the barrier necessary or something? I, I've never I don't figured know. that out. Let's let this question hang for a minute and come back on it. Let, let's have people really think about that. You're flying through space and you see this sort of like inverted saucer-shaped blue wiggly interference ahead of you and black space all around it in three dimensions and you recover the black box of the spaceship that went there before you saying, oh my god, we went through this thing, it didn't destroy us. But it's blah, blah, blah. Something's going on with ESP. Oh, we better blow up the ship. Boom. And yeah, you could have flown over it, under it, around it, any which way. Let's, let's just let that plot thread simmer for a couple <laughs> seconds. And uh, we'll be right back after this important, important message. I'm Captain Kirk. And now, sit back and relax as we uncork a bottle of Vintage Kirk, brought to you by Master of Motor, William Shatner. All I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer by. And so ends today's Vintage Kirk. And there came a day, a day unlike any other, when Earth's mightiest heroes and heroines found themselves united against a common threat. On that day, the Avengers were born to fight the foes no single superhero could withstand. Through the years, their roster has prospered, changing many times, but their glory has never been denied. Heed the call then, for now, the Avengers Assemble! The Avengers Assemble Podcast. Available now at AvengersAssemblePodcast.Libson.com Okay, we're back from break. Um, your bladder feel better? Oh my god, so much better. <laughs> You're so transparent. <laughs> Alright, so getting back into this. Oh, and I forgot to mention um, the... Uh, the uh, music in this one is by uh, Alexander uh, Courage, Courage, who did the the Star Trek uh, main ti- you know main theme, and uh, yeah, he scored this entire episode. And uh, not one of my favorite scores of his, but there you know there's a lot of the classic Trek music in there. Especially uh, I like the part where Gary's reading in sick bay. Yeah, you know, that, that beepy music in that part is is classic Trek music. Um. So let's see, moving right along, some other notes I had on this. This is one thing that always bugged me also, along with the barrier thing. Why is Gary, I mean, he, you know, I mean, granted, this nitpick would go for any crew member, but especially the one of the two guys that's responsible for steering the friggin' ship. Why is he holding hands with that <laughs> yoke? All through that one part where they're going through the barrier, he's he's holding on to her like, you know, 
it, I guess it was supposed to look like she was clutching to him for some sort of like su- like moral support or like no he turned to her and grabbed he her did. hand he turned to her like like he needed like like I'm scared baby hold my hand you know and it was like whoa that's really you know I'll tell you what there was a lot of that going on on the on the bridge of the Enterprise and and you notice she that woman her. I think that was what she was supposed to do is to hold hands with with the upper level crewmen of the Enterprise because she just stood there. <laughs> and then when when the doctor when the doctor woman, you know, when Sally Kellerman comes onto the bridge, she sort of gives her the hairy eyeball, you know, just like, oh, <laughs> who's this? Is is Kirk gonna hold her hand if we get into trouble? You know? What the what's up with this? I'm supposed to hold their hand. So, that so they was, have designated hand holder. Is that what you're saying? Well, here's here's something I saw on the YouTubes. Is somebody cut out a little bit from the beginning of uh, Shore Leave, and uh, it's it's Kirk just going about his business on the on the bridge, and you know a yeoman comes up and hands him a clipboard for him to sign something on, and he's looking at it and signing it, and you can see him sort of shrugging his shoulders like, oh, my shoulders hurt, you know, or and she just looks over at him and starts rubbing his back and he's just like, ah, okay, excellent. You know, it's good to be king. And uh, so there was always a lot of that sort of sort of stuff going on in the bridge. So maybe, you know, in the 23rd century, they had a little more open sexual mores, you know. Maybe there was a little more, uh, this, although it wasn't, you know, I mean, um, in The Enemy Within, when when the evil Kirk makes advances on his yeoman, she's, you know, she's not really uh, too thrilled about it. Or it seems, you know, she treats it as it's wholly, as if it's wholly inappropriate. So who knows? But yeah, I noticed that too. I was, I was wondering what was up with that. I wondered if it was, maybe they were trying to show that his, because, I mean, once he, he starts learning, there, it isn't a slow process he starts you know by the time he you you start realizing there's something going on with him he's flipping through the ship's library like crazy and spock's like we have to kill him and and like you said you start thinking that's really extreme but by the end of uh by the end of the show they make sure that you know it shows by his actions that it wasn't you know that that was the right you know you Something had to be done about him because pretty soon he was going to start squashing people like bugs. So, I I, I thought it was... Um, that the, the scene where he was reading and just reading faster and faster and uh, they're on the bridge monitoring him. And then he realizes that they're monitoring him and he just looks you know, into the camera at Spock and just start yeah. staring him down. That was really creepy. That should have been one of our, our honorable mentions in our in our creepy Star Trek episode because, yeah, I'd forgotten all about that. And, yeah, that, that moment's like, oh, whoa, he can see them through the monitor. You know, that would be like you're watching, like, you know, something on TV and then all of a sudden you realize that the guy you're watching on TV can actually see you sitting on your couch watching him, you know? It was that kind of that kind of thing, mm-hmm. and that, that was awesome. That was an awesome moment. I like that. 
it was funny because I haven't seen that episode since I was a little kid. And, uh, but as soon as I noticed I was going on, I was like, oh, that's right. He's going to start looking. Oh, and, and you know, whenever I'm remembering something from a little kid, I can never, you know, tell if it's going to, if it's accurate or not. But right. I sort of knew that was going to happen. It's like, ah, oh, yes, my memory is correct. <laughs> I am not insane, at least not when it comes to where no man has gone before. You know, there's there's degrees. There's right. degrees. <laughs> One thing I noticed this time on, on this uh, reviewing of this episode. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Once they go through the barrier, the ship's broke, right? Right. The, well, they they have impulse power, so they can't okay, get that's anywhere I, for years. That's what I thought, that they were at impulse power. All right. Now, when they're in the conference room and Spock points out about that planet, that mining planet or whatever it is, he says the planet is mere light, light days away. Light days away. Now... If they're at impulse power, which is a sublight speed, right? It should take them like a light week at least. Would take them. You would think it would take a long time. Yeah. Because I'm all right. I'm no astrophysicist, okay? But I know that it takes something like six minutes from light to come from the sun to the Earth. Six light minutes, right? Well, the moon is significantly closer to the Earth than. The sun is. Oh, yeah. Yet it took the astronauts, what, three days to get to the moon on Apollo? So I'm thinking a light day is going to be a trip and a fucking half, right? So, I mean, that's nitpicky, but I just got to point it out that it, it would take a lot longer than what it took them to get there. I'm thinking anyway. Now, I, my my understanding of all that could be way off, but anyway... Yeah, um, and it was just lucky that they found a base that no, you know, that is only visited every twenty years, that has the part they need to fix their yeah, yeah, warp I know. drive, and is a good place to drop off Gary Mitchell, which also has an oxygen-based atmosphere. So that's was... too bad they couldn't drop him off like on the Klingon homeworld or you know somewhere where he actually could have done them, you know. Done, done some good for for Kirk and the gang. They should have dropped him, dropped him off in a spacesuit on an asteroid, and just let him build that asteroid up from, you know, as his powers. He would have been pissed off, but he would have <laughs> he would have appreciated it later because it would have honed his powers. Now, did you notice that his hair gets progressively grayer and grayer? Uh-huh. To- Kind of looks like Reed Richards by the end of the episode. Uh-huh. I thought that was a nice touch. You know, it's really subtle. You know, nobody ever draws your attention to it. It's just one of those things that, you know, you can notice or or not. But I thought it was really neat. I, also, I read somewhere that it implied that he was, like, burning out on his power or something. Like, like yeah. his, bo- his power was using his body up or something. That could Yeah, that could very well be. I also noticed when he was... When he was reading, that when he turned off his viewer, that you could still see the text yes. on the screen. Yeah, I since it was just too. a backlit piece of a text. That's another now thing they, that you probably didn't see in, on your crappy black and white TV. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah, because I noticed that for the first time watching it on DVD. Well, something I did not catch, but 
is listed in the um, what is the name of this book? This is an excellent series of books if you if you've got the means to get a hold of them. They're called the Nitpickers Guides. Ah, uh. there's I have three of them. I have the Nitpickers Guide for Classic Trekkers, and there's two volumes for Next Generation. And these are great books because this guy is like super nerdy on all this stuff and basically just points out any like inconsistencies or mistakes or whatever. They're just hilarious reads. Something he pointed out on this was that it was really easy for Gary to look like a speed reader because he was actually reading the same page over and over. Like when the thing would flip. I, I didn't notice it myself, but that's what the book says. So I'll have to look for that the next time that I watch it because I thought that that was funny. I mean, he he's rarely wrong in these books, so I thought that was funny. Um, my next two notes are both really funny to me. The first one was, of course, this was well before the famed Vulcan neck pinch. Spock slugs sucker punches him in the gut. Did you see yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, that's true. It's bad enough that Kirk gives him the old, you know, slam to the. I think he hits him in the either either in the neck or in the ribs. Was was where typically Kirk would hit somebody, either right. like in the side of it, like a karate chop to the neck, or like a like a punch in the like a like almost like an elbow to the ribs. Well, he hits him in the ribs, and then Spock literally <laughs> like like kidney punches him, and I was like, oh, <laughs> it's just hilarious because. You know, again, like I pointed out before, there's there's a lot of other episodes where it would be like Kirk, Spock, McCoy beam down to the planet, get attacked by like, you know, like scrawny midgets or something, and get their asses hand to them. Now Spock's supposed to have the strength of like ten Earthmen, yet you know he never beats up on anybody but like Kirk, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. So I basically. That was, yeah, I thought that was great in this. You know, he actually, you know. Kirk's already subduing Gary on his own, and then Spock just has to get that sucker punch to the kidneys. I thought that was funny as shit when I saw it. Well, Spock is the bloodthirsty one in this one, you know. Oh yes, yes, yeah. He will kill him, kill him. Well, you know, he was just—he was jealous, is what it was. He wanted to be Kirk's best bud, so you know, he found a way to to get Gary out of the picture. He did get Gary out of the way. Did you see? Did you uh, check out Spock's phaser too? That he had on his. You know his his sidearm phaser. It was the, definitely a different design. One, yeah. Now is that the same ones they had in the cage? Maybe that, that round. Didn't they like click them? They like rotated them and clicked them for different settings or something like I that. Think I think so. I, I mean, I don't know that they do it in this one, but I know that they do it in the cage. They they rotate them for like the different settings. Well, they didn't really use them in this one. They used that laser rifle. Yeah. Was uh Now that's the only time you ever see that in the classic one is just this one episode and I was racking my brains trying to think when is the next time you ever see a phaser rifle? And I think it's somewhere during next gen, but I, I couldn't tell you the episode. I know they definitely use phaser rifles in Star Trek First Contact, but uh -huh. I'm pretty sure that they had phaser rifles at least once in the next gen TV series. I just can't remember what episode it was, but yeah, it, that that's, that's a very, actually to me, it looks very fifties sci-fi. Yeah. It's a big bulky looks, ray yeah. gun. Yep. 
Yeah, definitely not the stream, you know, because the later ones look much more streamlined and, you know, all of their equipment, you know, look look much more, at, at least a, a, an attempt at something that looked futuristic, whereas that phaser you're talking about, and, and especially that phaser rifle, to, looked to me like they could have been leftover props from, like, Forbidden Planet or something, you know, well, like, think, like they... I think about the time period of Star Trek, they started getting people started getting the idea that oh wait things are going to get smaller in the future instead of mm -hmm. bigger you know back in the 20s 30s 40s early 50s you know everything in the future was big and bulky and Mm -hmm. This huge clunky thing that was you know I mean the laser guns were bigger than the guns we had now <laughs> because they figured they would have to have all this technology in in them to be you know a laser gun so they were always these big you know bulky handheld things with two pie plates at the end and a TV antenna pointing out from the front of it so Star now, Trek was on the cutting edge once again oh yeah now, did you notice there's a guy I, I don't have any clue who this crewman is or if we ever see him again. But every time I watch this episode, this guy jumps out at me and makes me laugh. He's a little Asian guy, but he's all like hunched over. And as Scotty is engaging the transporter to beam them down to that planet with Gary, the guy steps from off frame, all hunched over like, looks at like what Scotty's doing and and then like steps back out of frame and i i call him igor cuz he looks like <laughs> yes master like he's tuck, ducking into like i don't know it just watch it the next time you watch it just think of igor from like the frankenstein yeah, movie yeah i totally that, didn't notice that it's, it's funny i i mean i'm i'm just watching that going what what function is this guy and what exactly is he doing cuz it looks like it's almost like that copying homework look. It's like he, he steps over to just see what Scotty's doing, and then he steps back out of frame. And it's just – it's so funny. You're just looking at him going, oh, what what is he doing? It was like it, it, George Takai's uncle who didn't speak English <laughs> or something. And they're like, just – I don't know. Put him in an outfit and put him over here. And he didn't really understand like that he was on TV or anything. So he was just sort of putting around while – I don't right, know. Now just, here after after so much busting on inconsistencies and just making fun of different things here here's a big positive the matte painting of oh, when they yeah. get down to the planet in the in the refinery thing in the background say what you want about the cheesy 60s special effects and how outdated a lot of things are and and that i will still maintain that the matte paintings in these old star treks i think they still hold up I think they're beautiful, man. Some they of them really mood. look awesome. Because mm -hmm. I, I especially I like this one, and I really I absolutely love the matte painting in. Uh, what's the name of that episode where they go to Aminiar Seven, and the war? There's they're having a yes. war with another planet via computer. Oh, what the hell is the name a of that? Taste episode? of Armageddon. That's maybe? it. Oh man, man, you pulled that out of your ass. That's it. That's the episode. And uh, that matte painting when they beam down to the planet. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. Oh and yeah. For any, 
I love that. That it's that's just that futuristic, like almost like Epcot looking city, and it's uh-huh. great. And uh, whenever I would exit uh, Space Mountain at Disney World, as you're riding the conveyor out of Space Mountain, there's these like tableau scenes that you pass of like like futuristic stuff in the future. It used to be. Uh, an American Express commercial, basically, because they sponsored the attraction. Well, they don't do it anymore, but the thing is still there. The last scene is this, I don't know if it's supposed to be somebody's house or whatever, but out the background, like these big windows, there's this futuristic city in the background. And it looks like a cross between that cityscape from a Mini R7 and like Tron. It's like a hybrid or something. And it's every time I see that scene, it reminds me of 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 that episode of Amini R Seven because it, it's just that same really cool like all kinds of like geometric shapes and stuff of the buildings and just that whole you know old school projection of what we thought future cities would look like you know and I, I love it I, I that, I'm a sucker for any of that retro future stuff if you know what i'm what i'm saying you know i i love that stuff i'm a i'm a huge sucker for stuff like that well the map the map painting scenes in star trek were always striking because they didn't use a lot of them you didn't get a a, an awful lot of long shots outside on alien Mm -hmm. planets in star trek unless it was like the hills or mountains or something that they could use you know the california background for but every once in a while, when they threw a map painting in, it was always really cool, and it was mm-hmm. o- and there was only a couple, three times. I think those two are the most memorable. You know, where yep. man has gone before and a taste of Armageddon are two of the most definitely memorable. Yeah, they are to me. I mean, there, there, there were others. There were definitely others, but those are the two that always immediately come to my mind when I think of, of Star Trek. You know, scenic locales or you know, scenic. Uh, uh, mats. Those are the ones I always think of. Um, after all these years, I still love the giant styrofoam rock that Gary uh, threatens Kirk with. Uh-huh. You know the the one that eventually falls off the cliff. I mean, and watching it in again in that in that DVD clarity, you can you can really tell oh, yeah. that the, that the rocks are all styrofoam. It's it's kind of sad actually, but it's funny too. Um, you already talked about James R. Kirk on the, on the tombstone. There's a date too, but I couldn't make the dates out. Could you make the dates out? Um, I could, but I didn't make a note of them. Oh, okay. I was just wondering if they were actually visible. They 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 were visible a couple times. Cause my understanding is that they didn't actually nail down exactly when Trek was supposed to take place. You know, for, until quite a ways later, it might, it might not have even been within the series itself. Because I, I know the first time I remember them ever giving some sort of half-assed, you know, clarity to when all this was supposed to be happening is in the beginning of Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan, when it says in the twenty-third century at right, right at the beginning. You know, kind of like it, it, to me, it reminded me of Star Wars. You know, with the uh, a long time ago. You know that that's how Trek II starts. And before that, I don't remember them ever even saying a century, but I might, you know, that just might be me not paying attention or what. I don't um, really remember either. But, um, 
Yeah, I mean, and that and that point in the the story is when you know it makes it you know because you're sort of questioning whether Kirk should really kill his best friend or maroon his best friend and i mean i remember thinking well you know this guy could be a seriously great ally <laughs> you know if you stayed friends with somebody with godlike powers that could work really well for starfleet if he stay ha, retains enough of gary mitchell you know and kirk actually used the famous you know absolute power corrupts absolutely line at mm-hmm. one point in this too and uh it's 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 very interesting. They do they do build you know it's very well written. They build Gary Mitchell's character in just a few. It, this is getting back to the the woman on the bridge holding his hand, might have been to illustrate that he you know that he had a little self esteem issue or was a little you know maybe not as self confident as he should be, and uh, there was definitely tension set up between him and Kirk. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there was, you know, there was definite. He, he, it was definitely set up that he might have a little bit of hidden resentment for Kirk, or you know, or is a little jealous because Kirk is is uh, in the position above him. Although it was pretty much established that when he met Kirk, Kirk was a superior. So Kirk wasn't like a friend who rose to the ranks i think gary started working for kirk or you know or or serving under kirk and they they became friends i can definitely you know i I can definitely buy where you're coming from because i always and this doesn't come from anywhere i don't believe except just my own observations but i always had the impression that gary might be a little older than kirk uh-huh. And that he always had kind of a like a protective big brother friendship with him, and maybe you're right. You know, maybe if if Gary really was older, and in certain aspects had looked out for Kirk, and now suddenly Kirk's the captain, even though they're best friends, there might be a little bit of of yeah. Well, you know, he mentioned. Sent- remember, he said, "Remember that creature? I took one of the. You know, he took a poison quill." Yeah, for Kirk, but it also they also establish that he's a manipulative person and that he's, you know, will will abuse a power a little bit. When he was talking, he's like, "Remember, I, there was that little, you know, you were, used to give me hell until that little blonde sidelined you, you know." After and then he was basically said after I maneuvered her there, and Kirk was like, "What you set that up?" He's like, "Oh yeah, I had a." big plan with all of that. Kirk's like, I almost married her. Well, you know, after uh, after Star Trek 2, there was a lot of fan speculation that maybe this uh, little blonde lab technician that they referred to might have actually been Carol, the the woman that was the mother of Kirk's illegitimate son in Star oh. Trek 2. Which, I think that's a nice It ties in nicely, fantasy. but I think it's a stretch. Yeah, it's a stretch because, you know, this you know, this was the first episode, you know, and and we all know that Trek continuity was not tight at all, especially in these early episodes. So it's nice to like retroactively put her in there and she would definitely fit. Right. But as far as any sort of planning or anything, nah, I don't, I don't buy think that so. at all. But, but it, it's nice that it could you know, that she can fit somewhere, you know, retroactively into the continuity. I think that's a neat idea. 
you know, I, I think that that's perfectly fine if they want to say that, you know, she's the one that, that they were referring to. I think that's kind of cool. Um, and then, you know, of course, we get, you know, we, we catch up to the point, you know, of where we were in the in the synopsis of the episode where, you know, Kirk tries to take Gary down. You know, first he blasts him with the with the phaser rifle, which has no effect because, you know, Gary's evolved to basically God status by this point. And I always liked, you know, Gary does the little, you know, Darth Vader move where he flicks, you know, Kirk's gun, you know, his phaser rifle out of his hand without even, you know, all he does is make a hand gesture and the gun goes flying. And uh, I'm trying to remember how do they end up. Oh, I know what it is. Is Yeah, Kirk, you know, one thing I noticed about this episode is that William Shatner is usually very obliging in these episodes as far as giving you things where you can really pick on him, you know, or, or yeah. really say things. But in this one, really, there's not. I mean, he's excellent as Kirk, and that speech he gives to the doctor, I love. You know, the whole thing about, you know, did you hear him joking about compassion? You know, above all else, a god needs compassion. And, you know, he's he's impassioned in his speech, yeah. and I really like that. But it, it doesn't – it's not the typical Shatner really overacting and really emoting. I mean, he really is coming off as really sincere and all that, and I like that. And he eventually turns the doctor against Gary. Yep. And they blast each other back and forth to the to the point where Gary's weakened back to enough of a mortal state to where Kirk can basically beat the piss out of him. And it's so a they very get Return of the Jedi like ending, <laughs> yes. actually. Yeah. I, I like that. I really like that. And you know, of course, Kirk. You know has a moment where he where he can kill Gary and and he flubs it. You know, he, he waits just a second too long and just really it's by happenstance, I think, that he actually defeats Gary. He just happens to you know, they both get knocked into that grave, the open grave, and Kirk just happens to shamble out faster than, than Gary does and he blasts the big rock face with his phaser rifle and the and the rock tumbles down and I guess you're supposed to believe that it entombs him. I don't. I never got the impression it necessarily killed him crushed so much him. as that. This. Well, I guess it could have crushed him. I always got the feeling that he was really just like trapped under this rock where he was never going to be able to get out. You know. Yeah, but that. I mean. That's a disturbing thought. Yeah, right he there. must. Nah, he must have been squashed like a bug. Squashed <laughs> out like a goddamn bug. Which is actually what he says to them when he's drugged up and they're trying to beam him down. Yep. I'll yeah. squash you all out like bugs. I'll make you disappear <laughs> too. Well, I like that, uh, you know, that 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 movie, uh, what is it, Galaxy Quest. In my mind, you know, there was a there was an homage paid to basically this type of Kirk episode, you know, yes. where they beam... Uh, they beam Tim Allen's character back to their ship, and uh, and the science officer guy says, "You know, well, I see you managed to get your shirt off," you know, which was that was right out of an episode like this of Star Trek, you know, where Kirk wind, winds up, you know, with his shirt all half ripped off, and he's beaten and sweaty and bloody, and you know, all beat up, and that's why I love Kirk, man. You know, he wasn't he wasn't <laughs> champ 
main hero. You know, he wasn't James Bond. You know, he didn't wind up at the end of the episode in a pristine uniform without a scratch on him. There was a lot of episodes where he wound up beat to a friggin' pulp by the end of the episode, but he still won. You know, he still came out on top. And uh, and I love that. And, and uh, it was funny, you know, again, I was watching this with my kids and, you know, Kirk at the very end, you know, after he's defeated Gary and the doctor passes away, he whips out his communicator and calls the Enterprise. And Logan, you know, my little eight-year-old goes, that's a really nice cell phone he's got. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you know? That's the funny thing is most cell phones now are smaller than the communicators of the 23rd century. But you know that the, the, the those cell phones definitely, I think they came from the communicator oh, sure. track. You know, they look, I mean, I know mine functions just like a communicator. You know, Oh, you yeah. To operate it, you know? It's just part of our cultural you know, knowledge, how that works. And everybody want, wanted that. So that's how they came. And you know, the people who originally designed all that stuff were probably engineers and scientifically minded. So, you know, they were definitely going to be making a communicator. You know, a lot of them probably know Vulcan and Romulan and Klingon. Mm-hmm. Just in their spare time. So... I just wish that they would come out with a cell phone that you literally flicked open like a communicator. Because I know mine, I have to lift it up. And once I lift it, it'll like snap into place or, you know, it'll stay in place once I open it. But I want one that I have to flip it to open it. And I want it to do that chirp. chirp. You know, I want it to do that little, you know, God, I want one of those so bad. I can't believe they don't, I can't believe they don't make them, you know, with the mesh with the mesh screen, you know, that that flips open. It's got to be that sort of mesh metal, you know. Um, what was I going to say? So, And I also noticed when Kirk was talking, he said something like, you know, Kirk to Enterprise, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, from Captain Kirk <laughs> at the end yeah. of it, like he was writing a letter. Well, who else was left on the planet, for God's sake? Didn't everybody else beam up to the ship? <laughs> to the Enterprise, from... <laughs> Captain Kirk. <laughs> Love and kisses, yeah. Captain Kirk. Well, I liked uh you know, I like that he makes the you know, the log entry at the end, you know, where he basically you know, commends them both and, and you know, he doesn't he doesn't have anything harsh to say or he doesn't make them out to be you know, villains or anything and it, it kinda I think it was kind of owed back to in a, in a funny kind of way at the end of Star Trek, the motion picture where he does something sort of similar with Decker and Ilea, you know, where it bas- he just lists them as missing at the end yes. of it rather than saying, you know, that, you know, Decker, you know, whatever, you know, rebelled, or disobeyed orders or, you know, whatever he just, you know, or evolved into a new hybrid life form. You know, he just lists them both as missing. I thought that was a nice touch and it's it's reminiscent to me of of the way this episode ends with just listing gary and the doctor the way that they do well they kept they kept trying to stress the fact that you know with his powers he wasn't gary and and you know they reinforce that whenever he would get hurt or or knocked down you know knocked out a little bit you know he would come back his eyes would stop glowing and he would be gary for a couple seconds now, did that disturb you at all? Because, uh, you know... Because that's when Kirk had to attack him. 
<laughs> yeah, well, it, it, but it disturbed me in the sense watching this again. There's that scene where Gary tries to force his way through the force field, and it weakens him to the point where he reverts. And when he reverts, he has that moment where he uh, of clarity, where he looks at Kirk and he's like, "You know, Jim." And it's like he he went back to his old Gary self. And when that happened, it's a little bit unsettling to me because, you know, at the end of the episode, Kirk does essentially kill Gary. Oh, yeah. But he kills evil Gary. But does that mean somewhere inside of evil Gary, there was a good Gary that got usurped and then also, you know, so likewise he was killed along with the bad Gary? That, oh, that's yeah. kind of a disturbing thought. I'm sure it was to Kirk, too. Plus, when Kirk had to strike, he had to strike at the good Gary because he had to strike when he was knocked down. So mm -hmm. Kirk actually had to, like, truly, like, betray his friend because he couldn't even attack him in any way when he had his godlike powers. So, you know, if the, if Gary had a moment of clarity, the next thing he noticed was Kirk coming at him with, you know, doing a double-fisted shoulder roll drop kick <laughs> to his face, you know. I checked and he did not do any shoulder no, no rolls. Shoulder rolls <laughs> yeah, no. I was waiting for it, but he did yeah. do he did do some pretty he did a pretty nice like super flip at one point. And I can't remember if it was cuz he got zapped or what Gary he did. did. Yeah. He, he was trying to charge him or do something to him and Gary just flipped him like a rag doll. <laughs> That's right. That was great. And of course it was Shatner flipping himself, which is is great too. But yeah, for an early episode it had the classic Kirk grapple battle that everybody's grown to love. Love it. Those are my those are really my favorites is when when Kirk gets to whoop ass on somebody. Those, uh -huh. those are are generally my favorite episodes because you know it, it's great you know seeing Kirk in action like that but there's also that underlying somewhat absurdity to it the fact that you know again this is the captain you right. know it would be different if he was like chief of security or you know something but it's the captain you know and the, the captain's you know, continuously in battle, and he's basically he's like the dude of the ship. You know, he's I mean, the he's king like, on the chessboard. Mm -hmm. You don't put he. You shouldn't fight when you're the captain because you shouldn't put yourself in danger. But he's Kirk. Kirk's a maverick. Mm -hmm. Kirk's a Kirk is Kirk breaks rules. Kirk, you know, Kirk has an ego like a humongo ego on him that needs to be fed too. So, you know, that was. I mean, I mean, I think, I think that wasn't uh, as much of a problem until the next generation came out and people saw what a what a captain with dignity acted like, which is Picard. You know, right. Picard got in a few fights, so Picard would get his hands dirty every once in a while, but he definitely was more, you know, captainly and regal and had that detached authority to him. Kirk had the authority and he would bark at people, but Kirk was more like the crazy millionaire sort of crazy other than the like captain, you know, he, Kirk didn't have a very military aspect to him, you know. I think the only reason he, Kirk would go into any kind of military or whatever Starfleet's considered is just to get him, you know, 
to get a ship. <laughs> well, you know, Roddenberry wrote the novelization to Star Trek The Motion Picture, and it's been so long since I've read it. But one of the things that I've never forgotten, and it really stood out to me, is at the beginning of the book where he's basically describing James T. Kirk. And one of the things that one of the ways he describes him is as a throwback. And I think what he means by that is a throwback to like the days of like the Mercury astronauts, you know, where these guys were all hot shot pilots. You know, they were all, you know, like you said, Mavericks, you know, they, they were guys that lived on the edge. And, you know, I, I mean, you could easily see somebody like, uh, like, uh, God damn it. Now I'm going to blank on his name. Um, yes. Shepard. Al Shepard. You could see somebody like Al Shepard whooping ass on somebody or getting into right. like a bar ball or something. You know, a very, very Kirk-like type of guy as, as an actual real astronaut. So, you know, in that aspect, if you look at Kirk as kind of the, you know, the, the latter-day – Al Shepard or one of those astronauts, then he was believable. Whereas, you know, by the time Next Gen came along, the idea with Captain Picard was that he wasn't one of those guys so much as he was, um, he was uh, Jacques Cousteau. Right. You know, that type of, like more of an explorer type of thing, which, you know, they're both, they're both legit. They both work in, in the, in the incarnations, you know, the, the way that they were intended, I believe. But what I find interesting most of all was, you know, there were all those debates and fights and everything amongst fans about who was the better captain and, you know, who was, you know, superior, and more realistic. And to me, that was all settled with generations, you know? When when Picard basically needed Kirk to save his ass, right, and, and resolve the situation with uh, with Soren, that to me settled that that argument once and for all. That yes. ultimately, Kirk was the man. Well, because- Kirk is the one. Kirk is the one who pulls shit out of his ass. He has the conf- <laughs> yeah, exactly. he has the confidence to pull shit out of his ass. He has the confidence to proceed. If he doesn't know what the fuck he's doing, and he has the confidence to pull it off, you know, he's got, you know, he will go by the seat of his pants, and he'll pull a ridiculous ploy if he thinks it's, you know, he can get away with it and it's going to work, you know. So it's, and you know, it's that it's that logic versus into, you know, he's a he's pure intuition. He's informed intuition, though. You know, he's got his training and he knows the rules, but he knows when to break them, and he's perfectly willing to break them if he has to, if it means, you know, that he can preserve his job, which is to protect his ship and his people on his ship. Well, I remember a few years ago when basically when when Trek started to wind down, you know, and and you know we were looking at the end of there being Trek on TV and all that. You know the the next gen films were over and you know DS9 and Voyager had had gone off the air and Enterprise never really you know just you know despite the fact it ran four seasons. You know you got to give it its due. That's a, that's longer than a lot of other shows do. So you know you have to give it its due. 
But basically, there was a lot of talk and a lot of speculation of, you know, was this the end of Star Trek? And if it was, why was it? You know, why why had it basically, you know, it had been so strong a few years before and now all of a sudden, why had it run out of steam? My personal theory, and, you know, people can disagree with me. I'm sure people will think I'm full of shit. But my personal theory is... To me, Star Trek was always about one story. It was about the story of James T. Kirk. That's ultimately what it was about. Yeah, Spock was a major character. Yes, there were other major characters that we enjoyed and that we liked following their story, including Picard and his people. But to me, as much as I liked Next Gen, it took Spock appearing on that show and then Scotty, and then eventually Kirk in Generations to add legitimacy, to to make it feel like it really was. I mean, in the very first episode of Next Gen, Dr. McCoy appears. Right. And I think that was to lend a sense of legitimacy legitimacy to it, like like it, it was really Star Trek because this character from the original appeared. Yes. And when they killed Kirk off... In generations, I think the franchise lost something that was irreplaceable. I think it lost basically the the center of the story, which again, to me, it was it's always been about Kirk. And unfortunately, now though, I mean, Shatner looks like Tweedledee. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's no more Kirk for Shatner, at least not without it being ridiculous. I don't know. You never know. He could. He could pull it off. He's William Shatner, but well, I know. mean, it doesn't necessarily have to really even be him coming back so much as well. He is anyway. I, I think what gives. Oh, have you heard he's coming back? Well, it's Kirk is. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. With the new yeah. Oh, that's a that's a topic for another another time. I've heard some things about that that just set my stomach on on edge, but uh. You know, I, I think my theory is is given at least a little bit a little bit of legitimacy by the fact of arguably the best Trek novels in the past I don't know how many years have been the Shatner novels where Kirk did come back after generations. And I've read them all and granted the last couple have not been as good as the, the first ones. But he did one that was called Ashes of Eden, which was eh, it was all right. It wasn't great, but it basically put all the characters in play. And then the next one was called The Return. And damn if that wasn't... I mean, that was probably... In a quick recollection, that was probably the best Star Trek book I ever read. Because it was just really? it was the book I wanted to read. It was... It was Kirk comes back and this is how we're going to pull it off and it was it was so good. I really enjoyed it. And it had everybody in it. You know, Kirk was in it, Spock was in it, McCoy was in it. The uh the next gen cast was in it. And uh oh it was just it was fantastic. I really really enjoyed it. And it tied um it tied Viger in with the Borg, and it was uh-huh. it was it was oh it was excellent. It was such a good read, 
and all the all the Shatner ones have been really good books. I mean, they've been very imaginative and and really you know added a lot to the canon and all that. And you know, I think that there's a reason why those books have been so successful, and and for the most part, they've they've met with you know very good critical success from the fan community because. You know, again, I, I think it all goes back to Kirk when you're talking uh -huh. Star Trek. That's like, my theory, and I'm sticking to it. I like the next generation. Well, when you first said it, I was like, nah, I don't know about that. But then I started thinking about it, and I think I totally agree with you. Because next generation, I mean, I remember when that came out, I was like sort of curious about it. But it was like during my freshman year of college, I had a lot of stuff going on. And, you know, I think we had a little... I, I don't even think I had a TV in my dorm room. We had one in, like, the lounge. And I remember thinking, well, I'm going to watch the first episode because I got it. But I was I was sort of prejudiced against it because it had LeVar Burton in it. And LeVar Burton annoyed the hell out of me. <laughs> he always annoys the hell out of me because... I don't know. Something about his acting style is too self-conscious. Like what when he, acting and, style? Exactly. Well, I would see him on like Reading Rainbow, or you know, I, I would be. <laughs> and and I don't like when people talk to kids. Sort of talk down like, and he was he, okay. So he was helping kids read, which is a great thing because I think reading is a, a vastly underappreciated and underused skill these days. But he talked to them like this. Yeah, he so, talked to them like they were tarred kids. Like he yeah, was, like he was reading him a little story, and 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 then uh, blah blah blah, and it was not aimed at little little kids, and that always and and he sort of brought that to to his regular acting too. So I was not looking, and I'm like, why did they cast Lavar Burton? Come on, you know, there's so many other actors and act whatever, you know. But then I saw that first episode, and I was like, yeah, you know, that was pretty good. That was uh, straight up. And I'm like, I see where they're headed with it, with this. More straight up sci-fi, you know, than the more operatic Cowboys and Indians Kirk feel, you know. Which made sense, and it's something different, and it, and it worked with the, the new special effects and stuff. But after Next Generation... I pretty much didn't really lost interest in watching any of those other shows. They all, to me, seemed to... That's when the Star Trek formula was established, you mm -hmm. know? And to where all the other shows after Next Generation were sort of like Next Generation is the way they were filmed and everything, but with a lower budget, you know? They, had, they didn't have the budgetary numbers that they probably had for next generation or you know they're try they they were trying to do them cheap and dirty you know it's more profitable when you do that anyway so mm -hmm. and and they were but they were still all solidly you know I would catch individual episodes and be like that was you know well written you know none of them ever struck me as being terrible except enterprise I really just didn't watch it out of sheer and this is where I get nitpicky and and overly nerdy and judgmental about something, but I just can't get over that fucking theme song. It's just so terrible. <laughs> what the fuck were they thinking? That's not whoa, that's that? not at all what I thought you were gonna say. I thought you were gonna say that you couldn't get over the the fact that they they basically they just 
totally screwed continuity. But you know, it's funny. No, I, I can get I can get past stuff like that because I'll just take it as its own little thing, you know, and not sweat it. But God what? damn it, you 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 you. A, it's just a shitty song. It's just one of those those formulaic pop songs with a Eddie Cheddar like singer singing it. And what the oh, fuck? Oh, this is funny. We have totally switched roles in this episode. I love it. You're the you're the the well, ranter that, on the edge in this I mean, one. I love it. I literally watched the the when I watched the first episode of Enterprise, which I enjoyed the, the show, but, oh god, when I heard that music, I'm like, what is, what are they thinking? A, you know, Star Trek has always had, like, symphonic music to it. This automatically dates it, and A, the music was, like, very 90s sound, you know, the music was 10 years behind, so the music was already dated when it was on there, and it was just a shitty song, this terrible generic, you know. It, I, I if it was a great song or something, that maybe would give it some points for me. But it was a generic, you know, written by some studio musician hack, probably written like ten years ago. He's like, oh, I, I got one for you, and I'll make up some new lyrics for it real quick. Ah. I'm going to totally blow your mind. Dude, do it, man. I like it. Uh. <laughs> and you know why I like it? Doesn't it doesn't blow my mind, no, man. It just no, disappoints I wanna, me. I wanna, I wanna <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint you. I'm sorry to let you down. It actually surprises me myself because you know me. Over the years, I, I have slowly pretty much abandoned quote-unquote regular music. I mean, right, I pretty much roll. listen ex- exclusively to movie scores. So the, the, mu- the music you're talking about is my music. You know, wordless, symphonic, movie score music, That that's what I listen to, you know, in the car, on my, wa- on my MP3 player, whatever. So I'm with you on that. I, I totally agree. And I, I think that um, Jerry Goldsmith's score for um, Voyager is a very underappreciated piece of music. It's beautiful, I think. That said, I like the Enterprise theme. It's not so much I like the song, because you're right. As a standalone song, I think it kind of sucks. But when you watch it with those credits and the footage they show... And you understand the feel of what they were going for. They were going for much more of a Mercury 7, Apollo program, a, a whole retro, yeah. you know, how we got from the Earth to the Moon, from the Earth to Mars, from the Earth to Vulcan kind of feel. I get it. I understand what the, the emotion they're going for and, and what they were trying to do. And it on that level, it works for me. I'm not saying it's a great song because it's not a great song. What I'm saying is it it works. It, it works for right. me. It works on that level of understanding the 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 strings they were trying to pull. Right. Could could they have done it better? Yeah, because they did eventually do it better. I got really excited when I saw there's there's a couple episodes toward the very end of Enterprise. It's the this two-parter where 
the um, the other Enterprise ship, I think it was the Intrepid from the Tholian Web. Uh huh. They find it. It's it. The, this two-parter is a mirror universe two-parter. So it's with like the evil Enterprise crew of the mirror universe. They find the Intrepid from the Tholian Web episode. Not only has it gone back through this spatial rift and wound up in the mirror universe, but it wound up in the mirror universe a hundred years back in time, so it winds up in the hand of evil Archer in the mirror universe. Beyond that, I don't remember all that much about the plot. But for those two episodes, they redid the opening credits to reflect the fact that this was the mirror universe. So, in like, instead of showing like the positive, hopeful scenes that they showed in the regular credits... They showed scenes of like war Nuclear and destruction war. And, and the Enterprise like firing on planets and shit like that. And for those two episodes, they rescored the beginning with a very dark theatrical, not theatrical, but you know, a, a score, a, a, yeah, a, a, an, an orchestral score. And man, if they had used that same, because I got excited the first time I saw it, I thought, oh, they finally changed the theme music. Oh, it was only for those couple episodes. But if they had used that music through the whole thing, despite the fact it was very dark, I think it would have worked fine because it was really a nice piece of music. So yeah, I, I'm with you. I understand what you're saying, but but you know, I don't I don't hate it. I understand why people don't like it. Um, sadly, uh, what's his name never did understand it because the the very first episode of. Um, Enterprise on DVD has an audio commentary with um, oh, damn I can't ever Berman is it Rick Berman and one of the writers and they're you know giving you all the behind the scenes detail and they go into the fact that you know fans hated that song and it sounds to me just by their oh, commentary good. that they don't understand why fans hated it, but they try to explain what they were going for. And I, once they did that, I, I kind of could buy it and and understand more of where they were coming from. It's almost like a breaking continuity, you know. It's it just sort of it takes you out of that world, mm-hmm. out of the Star Trek world that you come to expect being represented by a certain kind of music mm-hmm. bastards. bastards well we've gone from where no man has gone before to the final episodes of Enterprise yeah so I think um, we've covered the gamut in this one yeah it's time to uh, it's time do you have your uh, episode list in front of you by any oh, chance oh ah ha ha gotcha I got I got the random number generator pump punched up alright alright All right, I'm gonna um Start our special Star Trek random episode number generator. And I've got the random episode generator on my side. And there it goes. And Scott's got an episode guide. So as soon as it spits out the number, the episode number. Okay, episode 49. Episode 49 is... Ooh, it's Return to Tomorrow. Is that the one with Captain Christopher? The Air Force captain? Ooh, I like that one. one. I do too, but there's another one that's got Tomorrow in the title, and it's the one where they find those globe things that they let take over their bodies, and I can't remember which one is which. Let me see here. I got to look this up. 
Number 49, return to tomorrow. One way or another, they're all good. You're going to have to edit some of this out while I'm hunting this and trying to find out what in the hell episode this is. No, people get a little behind-the-scenes look at our... Okay, I was right the second time. This is the one where um, Kirk McCoy and that lady that would come back to Star Trek on Next Gen and play uh, Dr. Pulaski, they find those globe things. Remember, it's Sargon and somebody else, and they, they let... They let them inhabit their bodies so that they can build, like, new android bodies or something. Yes. That's about as much as I can remember about that episode, so that's a good one to watch. Because I, think I think Kirk has his merry way with one of them. <laughs> I think he does. I think he has I think he has sex with somebody who's technically a brain and saline solution. <laughs> and if anybody would do that, it would be James T. Kirk. Not James R. Kirk, but James T. Kirk definitely would. All right, so cool. So we'll be doing Return to... to- so what What the hell is the one I'm thinking of? That must be Tomorrow is Yesterday. I that, always that very well two- might be. Yeah, there's two. There's at least two episodes that have Tomorrow in the title, and I can never keep the two of those straight. Yeah, I think Tomorrow is Yesterday, where the one that's the one where they wind up back in the 60s, yep. and they bring that Air Force captain aboard. That's one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, so this one, this one here, I have not seen in a long ass time. So that'll be that'll be that'll a good be one. That'll be fun. Yeah. Cool. All right. Next month at this time, same monthly Monday, we'll have Return to Tomorrow, original Star Trek, and tune in next week when it's a monthly Monday of comic books. Right? Is next week. Yes. Yep. We'll, we'll be, be talking, talking about. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Walking Dead, <laughs> and um. I'll probably be talking about The Watchmen a little bit because I'm finally reading it for the first time. And I'll probably have it done by the time we uh, do that show and I'll watch the previews and see what I think. Cool. I'm not sure what I'm going to be talking about yet, but I'll I'll, I'll definitely have some comics to talk about. I read at least a a handful a week, so... Yep, so we'll be all... I've got a little pile beside my bedside, so I'll have some... Of some fodder. Cool. All right. Well, we'll see you next week, freak. Bye. See you later. Mind telling me what this is all about, mister?